The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome to another episode of Caitlin Carter's The Bright Side. I'm Caitlin. This week, I want to talk about some of my bright spots, per usual. One of which happened when I was uh, visiting Lake Tahoe this past week with the Hills team. We were out there filming a couple of episodes, and although it's never easy to do an activity like skiing in the middle of filming, I was able to take one run on the mountain, and it was just really great. I felt so happy while I was doing it. The snow was actually terrible. It had been really melting and sticky, and but the trail was really pretty, and I don't know, I just, it felt so nice to get the fresh air and to get a little exercise, and I love when I can sneak in a little bit of skiing, so that was a big highlight for me. Another highlight, and this is kind of big news, I guess, is that although it happened faster than was planned, my boyfriend and I found a house that we really love. And so I think that we, well, I don't think we are. We're, we're moving down to that house next month or over the course of the next month and a half. So that's kind of exciting. It, again, we, we had originally planned to stick with our own places, I think through the summer, but you know, we had in mind what kind of a place we were looking for when we did move in together. And all of a sudden this house came up available with the, a pool in the backyard and it's all fenced in for the dog. And it was just kind of perfect, uh, the layout and everything. And it's the right size. And we've got friends in the neighborhood. So yeah, that's a big deal. And it was definitely a bright spot to find out that we were going to get that house. And so this week's been a big week. And another thing that I'm sure is about to be a bright spot in everyone's week is this week's episode with guest Chrissy Rutherford. Chrissy uh, was special project director at Harper's Bazaar for a number of years, and she actually ran their social media account. She's since gone on to become a fashion and social media expert, and she founded a consultancy firm called Two Black Girls, um, which you'll learn a lot more about in this episode. But I think, you know, they're they're doing a lot of good work. And Chrissy is just a very interesting, smart woman who I've followed on Instagram for a while and you know, I, I just really admire her and I feel like she was somebody that I thought you guys would learn something from hearing on the show. So I hope you'll enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed having the conversation with her. And here it is. Chrissy Rutherford, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you. I've wanted to have you on the show for a while. It's kind of funny how I came across you on Instagram. It was through you and I both did Cult Gaia's Just Dance campaign. You remember yes. that? Yes, I do. I did a little TikTok dance. Yes. And I think I actually did the same dance that you did because I was like, what am I going to do? And then I think I saw yours either through their Instagram or just came across it on my own. And I was like, that is such a cute idea. And I loved it. So I think I did the same dance as you or at least something similar. That's so funny. I think it was to like a Dua Lipa song or something. Yes. Like. Yes. Okay. So it definitely was the same that it was so much fun. And it's funny because I'm not, I don't know how you are with TikTok. I'm not a big TikToker, but all of a sudden the beginning of quarantine, it was like, 
TikTok all day, every day. <laughs> it was how I was getting my cardio. I swear I was getting three to four hours of cardio a day, just learning different dances. 100%. Like I spent the first, what, six weeks of quarantine by myself in my apartment. And I was definitely getting into TikTok long before that, but it like really, really was a lifesaver and was my exercise. And like, I grew up dancing. So it was just like so fun to have this app where I can like learn any little like 15 second dance and like yeah. get a workout. See, you probably weren't spending as much time as I was because I'm not the greatest dancer. Like choreography is really hard for me to get down. <laughs> so I probably, you probably learned that Dua Lipa dance in 30 seconds. And meanwhile, it took me days. I'm like, okay, I got to get it right. I got to get it down <laughs> practice it over and over. I really, honestly, as much as I loved it, I used to love to hate on TikTok, but I swear, I think that, it saved my mental health during quarantine. 100%. Do you, are you still doing it? I haven't been learning as many dances lately, but it's funny because I'll spend so much time on it. And you know, like when obviously a dance is trending, you can see it literally a million times in a row. So sometimes when I then do go to learn it, I can literally pick it up in a minute because I've already seen it so much. So many times. Know it. It's a really crazy sometimes. But that's a really cool talent. I'm so jealous of people who can learn choreography really fast. I just do not have that skill. It's just like ingrained in me. I took ballet, tap, jazz classes as of like five years old. I was also on my high school dance team. So I did all of that. But no, there's something about the content on TikTok that I just think it's unlike anything else that's out there right now. It's very unpolished. It feels very real and just like down to earth. Like kids are literally going to like grocery stores and like doing their dances and like coming up with the most like, you know, ridiculous like comedy skits and they're not concerned with like, oh, this has to be perfect. Like that is truly the best thing about it. Yeah. That's actually a really good point because Instagram is so edited and curated. And I mean, Instagram is very overwhelming, at least to me. And I, I started to get into talking about your background a little bit, but you are a fashion and social media expert. So I feel like it's actually really interesting to have your <laughs> thoughts and opinions on the difference between the two. And that's something I'd never thought about was how TikTok really is just kind of, well, unless you're me and you practice 500 times, but it's, <laughs> it's supposed to be more natural and unedited and fun, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It just feels so different than everything that's happening on Instagram. Like there was definitely a point where I was spending more time on TikTok because I don't know, it just feels, as I said, like it just feels like really fresh and, and the content just feels so normal and everything is just always so like edited. It feels like it needs to be perfect on Instagram. Yeah. We, well, you were, I know you were a special projects director for Harper's Bazaar for a long time and you ran their Instagram or all of their social media, maybe. I mean, were you just really good at Instagram in the first place? Or was that something that you feel like you learned, you kind of honed your skills there? I definitely honed my skills there because, you know, we launched our Instagram account maybe like 2012. I remember, I still like remember the conversation we had about starting the account for the brand. And like, I literally said, I was like, this feels kind of off brand for us. Cause like at the time there weren't that many media companies and even the fashion brands like weren't really on it. You know, mm -hmm. it was an app that like you connected with friends on. So I was like, why would a brand like Harper's Bazaar, you know, one of the biggest names in fashion magazines, like get on Instagram, but 
at the same time, I, you know, I like to make the distinction that like really what I was doing at Bazaar was like content curation for the Instagram because I already had such amazing imagery that like the magazine was creating or my digital team was creating. And it was really just my job to like put it all together and to really, you know, set the tone for like what the Instagram was going to look like. But it's not like I was out there like shooting content on my own. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. But still, I mean, it's still a big job to figure out what exactly is relevant, who's going to want to read what, how you're going to keep it interesting, how to get people to subscribe. Yes. It's still, it's definitely still a skill set in itself. And also like, how do you bring this literally 150 plus year old brand like into the digital age? And, and how do you connect with like that younger audience when a lot of people saw Bazaar as being kind of like an older brand? Yeah. Well, it's funny going back to what you were saying about getting Harper's on Instagram in the first place and feeling like maybe it wasn't the right space. I remember... I used to think that Instagram was just a photo editing app. Like I was so unfamiliar. This was probably 2011. Right. And I used to edit all my photos on there to make them look like they were Polaroids. Because remember how they all had that Polaroid filter? So I would put in my, I would upload my photo to Instagram. Didn't realize it was going on a feed. And then I would just save the, the edited, you know, the Polaroid photo to my phone. And then I'd post it to Facebook. And so I, I never got that it was going on a stream of its own. I don't know what's wrong with me. And then eventually, once I did figure it out, I kind of similar timing to you launched my blog using Instagram to promote it. And this was 2012, 2013. And this was like pre monetization of Instagram. Nobody knew what to charge for an Instagram post. I mean, everything was so, uh, it's, it's so amazing to have watched the evolution over the years of what, how Instagram began and to what it's become now. It's wild. I mean, it was the wild, wild west back then and still kind of is right now, but yeah, it is really crazy to think back to those days. And even myself, like having worked in the fashion industry for over 10 years. And I think back to like my personal presence on Instagram, I was like, what was I doing that whole time? Like I could have been sharing so much more and this and that. And, you know, there was very much this like stigma about Instagram amongst the editor set that like, oh, you didn't want to appear like, you know, you were trying to be a blogger or that you wanted too much attention. Like being Mm -hmm. an editor meant you were serious. Like you have a real job. You're not concerned with like getting your photo taken outside of shows and things like that. So, you know, there was definitely a feeling like, oh, I don't want to like get too into that because I want to be taken seriously. But then obviously at some point it really tipped and it was kind of like, well, jokes on all the editors who didn't try to put more effort into Instagram. Well, I actually kind of remember that battle happening at shows at Fashion Week. I feel like there was this, actually, I wish I could remember what the article was, but somebody wrote a huge article about how bloggers were ruining the fashion industry because editors were no longer being invited to show, or they didn't have the same seats at shows or whatever it was. And there was kind of this- from Vogue. <laughs> but yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it's so interesting because obviously even Vogue has, you know, evolved, you you know, sometimes you just have to go with the times. Like you don't always get to stick with what you know. Absolutely. Like you said, the the scale has sort of balanced out now and everybody's sort of found there, but it is interesting to see all the editors like using (laughs) Instagram now all the time, because it is such a good way to get information out and 
Right. Well, the editors who have like really used Instagram to their benefit have really kind of won the game in a sense, because it is extremely competitive out there. And I hate to say that like you have to have an Instagram following to get a job. I don't think that, but there's just more opportunity available to you if you do build a following. I mean, I think that's across every industry because I have a friend who's a really big, well-known actor. And I remember having a conversation with him one time where he said, I have to start an Instagram apparently because for every movie role that I'm up for, they're now asking people what their Instagram following is or what their social media following is. And he had to start from scratch, zero Instagram followers. Because, you know, a lot of of actors and, and celebrities want, I think similarly, kind of feel like there's a stigma to being on social media because they're supposed to be these private kind of untouchable figures. And all of a sudden they were losing out on jobs because they didn't have the social media following to promote their next project. You know, like the studio is saying, why do we want to spend all the money on this when you could be helping? So, And it's like, oh, well, no one knows who you are if you don't have a huge following (laughs) on Instagram. I mean, it does, obviously it helps in many, many ways, but it's not the end all be all. Yeah, of course. But I see from time to time, I'll see someone who I know is like a really private actor or something on Instagram all of a sudden, and they'll have one photo up and that's it. And I always (laughs) think back, I'm like, you know what? That's definitely because the studios are saying they have to have some kind of social media. So it's just interesting how it's impacted everyone. When it comes to your personal social media, or I guess any kind of social media you're managing, do you have rules for like, what content feels worthy to be posted or, or how you decide. I had um, a woman named Yana Robinson on last week and she's a poet, but she also is, you know, a life coach in some ways. And she's very raw and open and vulnerable about everything she shares on Instagram. And I love it. We were having this conversation because she said she puts, she'll actually feel something and she'll kind of give her six months herself six months to sit with a feeling and digest and make sure she's not too emotional about it before sharing. Cause she's right. like, you know, no one knows what the actual timeline is. So it's fine if I, you know, for sure. Um, I mean, I know you're posting a different type of content, but I wonder if you have anything like that that uses a guideline. Not entirely. I think I, I just share very intuitively. Like I do try to share a lot of different parts of myself and what I'm interested in and what I'm doing. You know, I do have certain boundaries in place for myself of, you know, what I am like willing to and won't share. But at the same time, like, I mean, most recently, like I was having some really bad anxiety and some depression in December and January and you know, it came on very suddenly and the first like few weeks of it were really hard for me. And I wasn't really sharing on social media unless like I really had to, you know, like I had to post something. And I think maybe like three weeks into it, I finally posted on social just to say like, Hey, if you guys have noticed, like I'm posting on here, like kind of sporadically and I'm not sharing in the same way that I normally do. Like it's because you know, I've been dealing with some anxiety lately. And also like I was working on my newsletter that launched in January. So, you know, I don't always feel like it's necessary, like, oh, I'm depressed today. Like I need to tell everyone. So they know that like, you know, it's okay to feel this way. It definitely was something that like, I needed to just like sit with until I felt like I was strong enough to like share it with everyone. Because 
still when you're sharing those types of things, like I know obviously it is to help others and it's to connect with other people, but then you're also going to have people giving you sort of like feedback, like, oh, maybe you should try this or like, have you tried that? Or, you know, just like giving unsolicited opinions and whatever. And so I think when you are sharing that, you also have to know that you're opening yourself up to also like receive a lot of feedback from people. So you have to make sure that like you are in a place where you can do that. That is really good advice. Is that something, because I know that you say you are an advocate for mental wellness and mental health. So is that something that you have been dealing with for a long time? I mean, I I also suffer from anxiety and depression through it kind of sporadically. And I don't know if it's genetic, but it's definitely something that has, has run in my family. And so I talk about it pretty openly on this show for the same reasons, because I do feel like I want people to know, I feel really lucky that I grew up with family members who were open with me about their struggles. So when it started happening to me, I like knew what was going on and I was able to really kind of address it head on and figure out coping tools. But for anybody who hasn't had someone in their life like that, I try to just be really as transparent as I can about it on this show. So, I mean, if that's something you want to talk about, I'd love to hear what your experience was or has been. Yes, I've been suffering from anxiety, panic disorder since I was about 13 years old. I had my first Mm. panic attack like one day on the way to middle school and that really like changed the course of my life. Like I always say it sort of felt like a switch got flipped like inside of my brain and like I was always this very like outgoing child. Like, as I told you earlier, like I was a dancer. I literally have been on a stage since I was five years old dancing. I did school plays. I played the violin, the clarinet. Like I was that like performing arts kid. And then after I had this panic attack, I was absolutely terrified of getting on stage. Um, whereas before, like I never even felt nervous. Like I remember kids would always like say that they were nervous before getting on stage. And I never had those feelings ever, uh, until I had my first panic attack. And like, I could barely even like get up to present in front of my like 20 person class, let alone like get on a stage. So like I had to quit dance and like, doing almost everything that like I had loved to do. And did you know it was a panic attack at the time? I don't, well, no, I think like at that age, you don't really know what's happening. And actually what triggered it was I was on the way to school and someone threw up on my school bus. And like, of course, like you're a kid, everyone's like, ew, that's gross. And like, I thought I was fine. And like, I got through the rest of the school day, I was okay. But then the next day it like hit me, like I was terrified to go to school. Cause I was like, what if I throw up? Yeah. And- And I actually, like, I couldn't go to school for the next three days. Like I was terrified and I was having like psychosomatic issues where like I was convincing myself that like I felt nauseous or I was going to get sick. Okay. It is so interesting not to interrupt you, but it's so interesting (laughs) that you say this because my anxiety was very, I didn't, I don't know that I had a triggering event, but I feel like the idea of being sick was like to my stomach was a huge problem for me because what the beginning of my experience with anxiety was that I wouldn't be able to go into a movie theater because I was convinced that I was going to throw up. So I would have to sit at the back of the movie theater and like make my mom, whoever I was with, sit at the back with me because I needed to be able to run to the bathroom at any moment 
because I thought I was going to throw up and I would be so nauseous during the whole movie. And I don't know why it was movie theaters, but I like couldn't go to movies. So this is like an extremely common phobia. Really? Yes. It's extremely, extremely common. And yeah, I couldn't get back on the school bus. I didn't get back on the school bus for years. My mom had to literally drive me to school every morning and pick me up because I could not get on the school bus. And yeah, I couldn't get on stage because I thought like, what if I got sick? Like it just, it manifested into like everything that I had to do. And I also suffered from like claustrophobia. Like I couldn't get in elevators. Like what if I got stuck? Like it was... like thinking back to that time was so dark because like, you're so young and you don't fully understand everything that's going on. Like, luckily, you know, my parents had me go to the school psychologist and they recommended to my parents that I get a therapist. And I started therapy at a very young age and I've been in and out of therapy since then. You know, it's, it's helped me immensely. I still have a fear of growing up, (laughs) but, but it's not so restrictive now. Right. And my anxiety has also like just reinvented itself and manifested in so many different ways over the years as well. So, but it does often come back to that. That is so interesting. I never knew that throwing up was a big fear that a lot of people have. Cause I, mine, I think I grew out of that aspect of it because I don't, I don't fear that anymore. And I can go to the movies and now mine, I feel like is a little bit more situational. It's just, if I'm, I can tell if I'm really overwhelmed by something, usually it has to do with like, if I'm moving or, you know, changing jobs or something, then all of a sudden I'll start to feel, you know, I won't sleep well and I'll have panic attacks at night and that kind of thing. But it does, it's like you said, it's, it has definitely manifested in different forms as I've gotten older. It seems to kind of be ever evolving. Wonderful. Wait, are you, (laughs) do you still have a fear of throwing up? No, I don't. And So it's because when I think back, like I never, until this conversation, (laughs) I never identified that that's what I was so scared of when I was that age. But when I think back on it, I do remember as a kid, I would get a stomach virus about once a year. And I was always so worried for the winter time to come because I knew that every winter I would get a stomach virus and I would end up, you know, having to throw up. Like I just am putting this together now, but I think I was really scared of that when I was younger. Um, I think it's called hematophobia is like the fear of throwing up, but it also is rooted in like the feeling of embarrassment. Cause like, that's really what it is. Like if you were to throw up like in public or something like that, Mm -hmm. you might feel like really embarrassed and exposed and whatnot. But I like legit still have like a very intense fear of throwing up. Knock on wood. I have not thrown up since I was 11 years old. Wow. Have you, well, I won't even ask you because I have, I have a friend who is like this also, and he will spend hours in bed feeling nauseous, just telling himself he's not going to throw up because he's just like terrified of it. And I always say to him, you know, you feel so much better when you do, if you just get it out, but he will not. Same thing. I, yeah, I just, it's, it's truly like, it is my biggest fear in life. I don't know. I don't know why. And the last time I ever threw up was because I got the stomach bug. So I'm a massive germaphobe, germaphobe. <laughs> like 
touch any food or like put anything in my mouth. Like if I haven't washed my hands before I touched it, you know? Yeah. But also a really good book about this is My Age of Anxiety by Scott Stossel. I think he is a writer for The Atlantic and he wrote a memoir and he also had a fear of throwing up and writes about it. And like he, I mean, he had really bad anxiety and, but that was also one of them. And he did like, he did immersion therapy to get over his fear of throwing up. And so you do it like in a controlled environment where like the doctors give you something to force you to throw up, but something happened during it where like, I guess maybe they didn't give him enough and he couldn't throw up and was just like stuck gagging. It's a really, it's a really awful, but also kind of funny. Um, so it did not work. So he wrote it as like kind of a funny experience, but Oh my God, that's, I cannot imagine a worse situation than being stuck between throwing up and not. (laughs) I'm Darren Karp. And I'm Liz Cully, and we're the hosts of the podcast, Scissoring Isn't a Thing. That's right, Liz. Each week, we bring on different guests from the LGBTQ plus community and allies too, of course, to discuss everything from coming out stories to pop culture to even celeb crushes. No topic is off limits. From Bravo Labs to influencers to doctors, Scissoring Isn't a Thing is the heartfelt LGBTQ plus education friendly podcast everyone can feel safe to fall in love with. New episodes drop every Tuesday, wherever you stream podcasts. See you then. Well, I want to talk to you also, because I know that you founded a consultancy called Two Black Girls. And is that a newer project of yours? Yes. Started as of June 2020 with Danielle Prescott, who is a friend and also former fashion editor. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. It's funny because Danielle and I never like sat down and thought like, oh, should we start a business? Like we just kind of sprung into action because there was a demand for our expertise, both like in the fashion world um, and being black women who have worked in the fashion world for a long time. And I made a video at the end of May talking about the death of George Floyd and why I felt it was important for everyone to be speaking out about this on social media, regardless if you have a million followers or you have like 200 followers, like we all have a community and um, we can all like inspire others to act and speak about these things. So my video went viral. Danielle also posted a video and hers went viral. And so literally within like the next 48 hours, I had so many like influencer friends and brands like reaching out to me to be like, oh, do we need to say something? What do we say? I'm scared, this and that. And Danielle and I just happened to be like commiserating with each other that everyone was coming to us about it, that um, we were like, should we just teach them? Like, let's just put something together. No, I mean, I think it's brilliant because I think a lot of the reason that people don't talk about things is because they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't know what to say. And so they're scared. They're going to, there's going to be backlash or whatever. And There's definitely a need for this. Yes. So there's two parts to our business. Like we've been doing direct consulting with brands, you know, helping them to like set, set benchmarks and guidelines for how they're communicating their brand externally and also how they're approaching inclusion within their office and then we also teach an anti-racism class. We started off teaching it 
directly to influencers uh, in like the first couple of weeks. And then we started opening it up to brands and doing like corporate sessions. And then we also do it for basically like anyone in the fashion industry or like fashion adjacent. The class really directly unpacks how racism shows up in fashion and beauty Mm -hmm. and how to navigate conversations around race and like action steps that people can take how to, you know, incorporate, you know, amplifying Black voices in your content or hold your brand partners accountable and also like how to really move forward and how to be an ally, whether that's like creating an inclusion writer if you're an influencer or for brands to, again, like set benchmarks for like a percentage of diversity they need to hit in the future for events, press trips, anything like that. So did you say an, an inclusion writer? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really good idea. Absolutely. And I know a lot of a lot of influencers are, you know, are implementing that or clauses in their contract that, you know, if a brand does something and messes up like that they can get out of the contract because Lord knows brands have it the same thing to protect themselves. And well, Two women on my show, see, I guess it would have been in probably June or July. And they were, they were both like Harvard grads and two young black women who I just randomly came across on Instagram. And I felt like they were sharing really informative graphics that they had put together themselves that were very helpful. I thought, so I just had them on, on the podcast just to have a conversation. And I remember them telling me that they were really concerned that this was going to be just a moment in time and that, you know, everyone was going to be paying attention for this moment and it wouldn't wouldn't continue. Like it would, you know, and, and I've kind of been paying attention to that with brands. Like, did they just start being more inclusive in that moment? Or is it something that's continued to, I mean, what do you, what do you think? I think both brands and influencers, a lot of them do not have the stamina to like actually keep this up because listen, like talking about racism is exhausting. Like black people don't like it anymore, but like we right. have do it um, because this benefits people that look like us. I certainly feel like I've seen positive changes in terms of inclusion and campaigns and that kind of thing. For sure. I do think I listen, I definitely think that there are a lot of brands um, that are taking steps in the right direction. But at the same time, it's like it's still too early to tell because this is a very long game. This isn't like, oh, let's throw some black people in a campaign for six months. and People will think that, you know, we've done all we can. Like, no, this is truly like a lifelong commitment because we're not going to see racism fixed in our lifetime. We're just, we're not, but. Well, and that's kind of what I've been watching for is I'm like, is this, am I going to see all these campaigns for now? And then it's just going to go back to how it was. And I mean, my hope is of course that that won't be the case. And, and people have woken up a little bit like. And that's why there's things like the black and fashion council, which I'm part of that Lindsay peoples Wagner and Sandrine Charles both started to be able to hold brands accountable. They have to take a three-year pledge and the council also helps like provide resources for them. There's a job board so that, you know, when they are looking for more diverse hires, there is a place for them to go because I think if you're in the fashion industry, like it's all so insular and like we all just go to who we know when we're looking to hire. But a lot of people don't consider that like actually you need to start with a diverse pool of candidates and you can't keep looking in the same place that you always did and expect different results. That's a really good point. Thank you for starting that because I feel like that's a great resource for so many people. And I know you also launched a newsletter, which I feel like is very on brand for this show because 
the theme is joy, right? Yes. Is it called Forward Joy? Yes. Okay. So yes. So it's called Forward Joy, which is actually my father's birth name. And <laughs> I know it's really cool. Crazy. Both of my parents are Jamaican immigrants. So he changed his name when he came to the U.S. And he does not like to talk about this name. So I'm sort of giving it new life. And it was just the first thing, honestly, that came to me when I was thinking of what to call it. And the newsletter isn't completely about joy. I think it's also about how we how we take care of ourselves and, and self-discovery and sometimes how to find joy also means that we have to like sit through the uncomfortable times in our lives and sit through darkness and pain to like get to where we are. Because even when I think about my history with anxiety, like I have gone through some incredibly dark times. And sometimes I think it is a miracle that I am even half as well adjusted as I am. And that's really because half of it is therapy and half of it is because I'm so dedicated to my own well-being and I really try to do all the things I need to do to make sure like I'm taking care of myself. I love reading like self-help books and psychology books and I really want to understand how my mind works, how, why I see things the way that I do and how also understand how other people function like it's just something that I personally feel very curious about. Yeah. Well, I think it's also such a luxury to be able, because I think this often, I'm really grateful that I have the time and resources to be able to spend so much time, like really focusing on myself and taking good care of myself. Cause I know that's sometimes easier said than done, but I'm, I'm with you. I love to really kind of explore how, how we all work. So what is, what would the content of a typical newsletter be? I need to sign up for this, by the way. So so three have gone out already. The first one was, which was like my welcome letter was basically just a personal essay of me talking about how, because I left my job at Bazaar where I was for eight and a half years, literally right before the pandemic. And I didn't really have anything lined up. Of course, I had an Instagram following, so I was kind of hoping to lean on that before I figured out what path I was really going to go down. And so I had all this extra time on my hands, of course, like locked up in my apartment to really think about like, okay, what is my life's purpose? Like, what am I really supposed to be doing with my life? Because I do think being in fashion really was my passion. And in many ways, I've used that as a vehicle to be able to talk about all the other things I like to talk about and like mental health, explaining like, again, sort of like why starting this newsletter was important and why I really think it's important that we all invest in ourselves. My second one was an interview with my astrologer. I'm very into like astrology, tarot, psychics, like all of that. I saw you're a Pisces. I am a Pisces. (laughs) I'm a Virgo. Oh, okay. So we're sister signs. Okay. Good to know. (laughs) Yeah. Virgo and Pisces are opposites. So you're actually like, you have a lot of similarities to your opposite sign. And yeah, my astrologer and like having my, have you ever had a birth chart done? I haven't, but I want to, because I'm also really into astrology. I don't, did you ever read the website Mystic Mama? Yes. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah, so I've always been like fascinated by astrology since I was a little girl and having my birth chart read 
uh, five years ago by my astrologer, Rebecca Gordon, like was a huge game changer in the way that I understood myself and also just felt sort of validated in, in who I really am. Because I think, you know, we all are extremely like multifaceted. And I think a lot of us have dreams. We're sort of too scared to say out loud or acknowledge like certain parts of ourselves and like really take ownership of that. And having my birth chart read just felt very affirming of like who I knew myself to be, even if I didn't always express myself in that way. So yeah, that, so I did a, conversation with her where we really talked about like the benefits of having your birth chart done and how that can be a healing. Do you, do you mind sharing who your astrologer or who, who did your birth chart? Rebecca Gordon is my astrologer. Oh, Rebecca Gordon. Yes. I would love to do that. I also love Alice Bell. She's actually, uh, she used to work in fashion as well. She worked at Vogue and is now a full-time astrologer. And I also love, um, Danielle Beinstein, who I have not had a reading with, but I think I'm going to book a reading with her this year for my birthday. She also has a psychology background. So I think it's really interesting because there is a lot to be said for like psychology and astrology lining up. Yeah. I had a psychiatrist who told me that, you know, he's like, it makes sense because I would talk about astrology in, in therapy sessions and he would say, well, you know, it makes sense that astrology would guide our lives in a lot of ways because it, the moon's gravitational force controls the oceans and the tides and our bodies are made of the majority of water. So why would we assume that we're not being, you know, affected by the positions of the planets in the universe? And it made so much sense. 100%. And I think anyone who does not believe in astrology just needs to go have their birth chart read. <laughs> I think a lot of times people think astrology is bullshit because they're like, oh, well, daily horoscopes like tell you you're going to meet like the love of your life today or whatever. Uh, or they think that like, oh, well, how can all of these people just because they're born in this particular month, like all have these same characteristics, same. but it's not, it's just not as simple as that. Right. And also I, I would agree that a daily horoscope is a little too generic you know, like you can't just go to that and assume, right. And, and base your opinion of astrology on that. Yeah. You need to have a, you need to have a birth chart read because that is, there's an, everyone has a completely unique birth chart. Like there are no two people who have the same birth chart because the planets are never going to be in the exact same position, you know, exact same time, the exact same time and certain location as when you were born. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so excited to do that. I hadn't even really thought, I don't know why I hadn't thought to do it before, but I'm really excited. Definitely doing that. What are a couple of things that you've in the past week or so that have been bringing you joy? Binge watching Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Oh, did you just get started on it? So I watched it when it first came out, of course, I think through college, maybe, uh, so I had missed a lot of it. I think I stopped around season five and like now there are literally 17 seasons. So I started from the beginning cause it's all on Netflix. Yeah. I just There's so much to get through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I'm the same though. I think I stopped around season five or six and I just, I don't know why I loved the show. It's really good. I've got a good recommendation for you. I started watching, um, well, I don't know why I think you would like this specifically, but it was really good. Um, Servant on Apple TV. 
I don't know. It's it's M Night Shyamalan. You know, he wrote yeah. he wrote Signs and The Sixth Sense and um, The Village, and so he made this show for Apple TV, and it is creepy and it's weird, but it's like the only show I've seen. It's so interesting. And it's the only show I've seen in a while where I just can't, literally cannot wait to watch the next episode because I have to know what's going to happen. It's really good. What's your favorite way to celebrate a success? Such a good question. With gratitude. I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but I think that when I look at how my life has gone this last like eight months, and I feel like I've had a lot of personal success I just really feel so much gratitude. And that's the only thing I've really done to celebrate. Like I haven't really like, oh, I'm going to go out and buy myself something. Like I just feel incredibly lucky because I know it's a really, really hard time for a lot of people. There's nothing else that I can feel but gratitude for what I've accomplished. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And finally, before I let you go, is there anyone who you would like to shout out today who's either been struggling with something or who's just really been for you, there for you lately? You just want everybody listening to send positive energy or thoughts to? Again, sort of piggybacking off of what I just said, like literally anyone who has like lost a loved one in the last year or have lost their job. I've had a lot of friends personally who have, you know, been laid off or had to close their companies and don't really know what is next for them. I would definitely love to send positive energy to them. Thank you. Lastly, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram at Chrissy Ford. And you can also find my newsletter sign up at chrissyrutherford.com. Okay, awesome. I'm going to be going there right now. I, mean, I need the yeah. newsletter. Yes, thank the you. Comes out on Monday. Oh, perfect. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was really great to talk to you and get to know you a little bit better. So nice to meet you. The Bright Side is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. Our theme music is by Maddie Noise. You can follow me on Instagram at, at Caitlin, K A I T L Y N N, or email the show at thebrightsidewithkc at gmail.com. Have a happy day. I never wanna live.